Welcome to the latest episode of Focus Talks on Investec Focus Radio, a series of candid conversations with leaders, innovators, and change makers. It's a very simple message. Do aid. One, you have no idea where the aid money ends up. Two, you know, they'll need to come back and ask for more aid anyway, right? Whereas if you if you invest in this kind of way, if we manage it reasonably well, you get your capital back. If we do it really well, you get a return. Then you can recycle it. That was Dr. Kim Tan, a pioneer in the impact investing space, giving some insight into why it made sense for him to redirect his philanthropic funding into what he calls social venture capital, what most of us now know as impact investing. It was a visit to a South African township that changed the Malaysian-born entrepreneur's view on what it takes to lift a community or country out of poverty. I am Max Richardson, Senior Investment Director at Investec Wealth and Investment in the UK. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Tan. We're going to explore impact investing, impact entrepreneurship, corporate and personal purpose. And we're also going to hear about some of the specific projects and companies in which Kim has invested. But to begin, let's set the context. We live in a world that has significant environmental and social challenges from climate change to nature loss, social inequality, to the breakdown of trust in institutions. The rise of ESG investing has forced investors and entrepreneurs to account for these risks. So Kim, perhaps you could begin by telling us a bit about how you got into impact investing, but also how impact investing specifically fits into this wider backdrop of ESG and sustainable business. I, I got into investing by accident. My first career was in science. After my PhD, did three postdoctorate fellowships all around cancer of the pancreas, stem cells, and all these wonderful things. And I bailed out of that to go into biotech and started a number of biotech companies, ended up running a biotech uh, venture capital fund. And on a trip down to South Africa, I didn't feel I could take my family to a five-star experience at Kruger National Park on a safari without showing them the other side of South Africa. So I was spending half a day in the largest township just outside Cape Town for Kailicha, those of you who've been there, was really a moment when I just sort of had a change of mind, change of heart about my own philanthropy. I became disillusioned with my own philanthropy because what I saw there was I could write some more checks for this large NGO that was taking us there, but I knew it wasn't going to make any difference. And that what was going to make a difference was, you know, real businesses, creating real jobs, paying real wages, and helping people to become independent, helping people to have that dignity of providing goods and services that we want to buy, not out of pity, but because there are quality products and quality services. And I, coming from Southeast Asia, just remembered you know, how the Southeast Asian tiger economies have transformed themselves, not through aid or through charity, but through largely in the 50s and 60s, Japanese companies coming into our country, offloading their low-tech small, medium-sized enterprises, and these SMEs creating jobs for our people, train our people, and then stimulated a generation of local entrepreneurs who then went out and became either their suppliers or eventually became their competitors. I thought, Africa is not going to be any different, really. And historically, no nation has ever been transformed through aid and charity. 
they've all been transformed through foreign direct investments coming in and building businesses, creating jobs, employing people. So there was a moment in time when I decided that one, I would stop doing philanthropy. Two, that I would then transition out of a biotech VC into what I then call social venture capital. There was no terminology. In fact, investing as a terminology only came in about 10 years ago, mm. really. Rockefeller Foundation with a bunch of the rest of us agreed on it, agreed terminology. So I call it social venture capital. So can you use a VC kind of approach in this social space, but not expecting a Silicon Valley type return, but nevertheless to build sustainable growth businesses that have to be profitable because if it doesn't become profitable, they become charities in the end. So where does uh, impact investing fit in with the, the, the now accepted sort of understanding of ESG? Well, some 30 years ago, we had ethical investing, right? And you all remember, those of you old enough to remember that. And that's really kind of negatively screened publicly listed entities. And I call it a do no harm, right? Do no harm. I'm not sure that the companies that we invested in completely do no harm, but it's just you know, your usual alcohol, defense, pornography, tobacco. So we now have this ESG, which I term, I classified it as do less harm. Because if you look at the E side, if you look at lithium mining and copper mining, they're pretty ugly. And cobalt particularly is now poisoning our rivers in the Congo. And we have loads of children now born with deformities. So I think we need to just be aware that this is still uh, not ideal and probably never will be ideal kind of ESG, but this is a transition that we have to go through. If you look at the S side, well, the way we treat our miners and the condition of living of our miners, that's pretty ugly too. And then if you look at the G side, that's pretty ugly as well because, you know, whilst you may have all the governance and so on, the fact is many of these companies structure their tax affairs in such a way that they don't pay any taxes or hardly any taxes in the countries where they're deriving their revenues from. And the amount of tax that we are depriving Africa particularly of because of these clever tax structures is actually more than the amount of aid that we give to Africa. So ESG companies, if we don't look at it more carefully and critically, can actually be unethical companies, very unethical companies. So that's something to be aware of. So one of the things we're finding out about ESG is we're trying to monetize, you know, how much carbon we are, we're savings and, and, and so on. There's just certain things that cannot be monetized. And, and there's a big difference in my experience between output and outcome. Outputs are relatively easy. The monitor outcomes is is really what we should be targeting, and that's where the impact investing or the social investing comes in. So, for instance, we run a chain of low cost schools in about six different countries in Africa and India, where we charge five dollars per child per month. We use technology; everything's on tablets. Parents pay us by mobile money. We pay teachers by mobile money and suppliers, and that cuts down the sort of back office costs. Therefore, we can deliver the education at $5 per child per month. We started with one school in 2009 in the slum in Kabira in Nairobi. 
Today, we're 8,000 schools with 2 million kids in our schools every day. Okay. So I can give you numbers and an outcome on, on all that, how many teachers we employ and so on. But what's the real, and, and, and there's a monitoring value around that. But the outcome is really what we should be interested in. The outcome is educational outperformance. So every year we sit the national exam in these countries. And what we've shown is even at $5 per child per month, we get a two times improvement in educational outcome from these kids that can't be monetized. So where does impact fit in? So you've got do no harm investing, do less harm investing. The impact is intentionally doing good with your capital. So we look at a, a social problem, a social need, and we say, instead of doing charity, can we go in and build a sustainable business that is profitable, but that can also address the social need? So education is one that I've mentioned. Another one is right inside Changi Prison in Singapore, the largest prison in Singapore. We employ 80 men and 100 women to run a telephone call center. We pay them a minimum wage in Singapore, which is about 600, saying almost 600 US dollars. So they are able to come out with money in their pockets. They've been upskilled with computing skills to run this call center. And then we re-employ them in a call center in the city. And that way we reduce the re-offending rate down to about 3 to 4%, compared with 35% in the country, compared with 60% here in the West. In the UK and in the US, 60% will re-offend within two years. And in the environmental space is where I started. You know, I decided to not do any charity, but I fell in love with South Africa. And those of you who've been to South Africa, you know, that's not difficult. And decided I want to do something. And, you know, and, and I thought, well, let's ask the tough question. Which is the poorest province in South Africa? And they all said the Eastern Cape. I had no idea where it was, but I spent two years flying it out, sort of learning, listening, going in and, and visiting failed projects, lots of failed projects, funded by you know, the EU, World Bank, you know, with good intention and ended up deciding to, to sort of build a, a safari game park from scratch. We bought about 40,000 acres of degraded farmland and fenced 75 kilometers of elephant-proof fencing. Took 75 men about a year to do that. And that took another two years to build a five-star lodge and a staff village. And to use an ecotourism approach, to fund the conservation. We believe that we can take a, an enterprise approach, which is, I think, more sustainable and more holistic as well. So the Western way of looking at the environmental issue is, I think, too siloed. And we think about save the elephant, save the rhino. But the reality is that if the community surrounding these forests and reserves are hungry, no matter how many AK-47s you give the rangers, you'll never be able to stop them from chopping your forest and shooting your gate. Well, the answer is we go in, yeah, we build a luxury lodge, but we're going to build three, four businesses into the community, create real jobs, uplift people, install some solar induction cook stoves into the community, address the hunger in the community, and hope, therefore, they're not going to chop your trees and poach your animals for bushmeat. So we need to take a more comprehensive, holistic, enterprise-based approach if we want to tackle the environmental issue as well. 
the key question in my mind is whether philanthropy is being disrupted by impact investing. Or will there always be a place for philanthropy for grants in that really kind of catalytic stage? Maybe you could talk about that and this concept, because you've alluded to the kind of two of the three key pillars of impact investing, intentionality and measurability, but there's this key third pillar called additionality. And maybe just in that context, you could talk about additionality too. Uh, There will always be a place for philanthropy, right? If you have a humanitarian crisis, you need these aid agencies and charities to go in. So there will always be a place and a need for charity. And where we are seeing the foundations and family offices now engaging with us in this space is they tend to be willing to come in and take first loss. And anytime we have that just makes us makes it easier for us to raise financing from others. The second thing that they, the philanthropies are, are really great at doing is they tend to be willing to finance innovative ideas. You know, pilots, it's just great. And they come in, they do the piloting. And, and a number of times we've then come in as investors, you know, after a pilot has been done and then to put real financing behind to help to grow. So there will always be a place. So additionality is, is absolutely there for us. But what we're seeing is increasing numbers of family offices and foundations are now doing an allocation into impact investing. Because it's not difficult to sort of understand. If you're building a real business on the ground, you're creating real livelihoods for people and you get a return and you can recycle that. Well, that's not difficult. So not only are family offices buying to that, our main investors are really sovereign wealth funds. So it's the North Funds, the CTC, the FMO. They are now our major limited partners, our LPs. And it's a very simple message. Do aid. One, you have no idea where the aid money ends up. Two, you know, they'll need to come back and ask for more aid anyway, right? Whereas if you if you invest in this kind of way, if we manage it reasonably well, you get your capital back. If we do it really well, you get a return. Then you can recycle it. Well, taxpayers love that, right? It's taxpayers' money. So I think it's not a difficult argument. So we're seeing increasing numbers. And therefore, we need people like you to help these fund, you know, these foundations and trusts and philanthropic organizations to to start maybe making allocations into this kind into the space. This this begs the question: um, hearing about some of these amazing projects that you have invested in, talk about the challenge of scaling these projects and scaling impact investing to meet some of those big macro problems that I talked about: climate change nature loss, societal inequality. How vast is that scaling challenge? You know, I, I think, Max, in reality, we can only do our bit, right? But if we all did our bit, that's a lot. So, you know, we've added, you know, 40,000 acres as a reserve. So if, if every individual with some resources could add that on, that would make, make a difference. If you look, say, at Kruger National Park, you know, some 30, 40 years ago, quite a small area. But what happened was that individual private investors started to add 10,000 acres at a time around it. And over time, it's just enlarged. So the challenge, I think, is not to let this huge problem, and it is massive, you know, make us do nothing. On the environmental side as well, we have a, a plant called Canaf, which is a hibiscus variety and grows everywhere in the tropics. It grows really, really quickly. We can harvest every four months. 
grows very tall. And the real value of canal, uh, why it's grown, is because of the fibers. The fibers are very long and strong. And it's used by Toyota in their cars. So if you have a Toyota, you've got this plant called Canaf, and it's a biocomposite in your, in your car, and it's also in use in insulation. So that's a value. But the stem, which is also captured carbon, can now be chipped and just mixed with lime for building houses without sand, without cement. And the lime will continue to capture carbon over time and become calcium carbonate, which is stone. These houses actually become stronger with age, unlike our concrete houses. So we mix this as a slurry, we pour it on the panels. Once they're dry, we bring them on the site. Three to four days, we build a house. And these houses just act as carbon sink. So we haven't got down to sort of monetizing yet the carbon that's captured. And then the leaves have got almost a 20% protein, so that's palleted as animal feed. So all three parts of the plant can be used, but it's locking away the carbon. Right, so we need to think more creatively about how we can find ways of locking carbon away. And so we just need more innovative ideas, I think, and we can all play our part. So this Kanaf thing is, is in Malaysia, now in Indonesia. We're going to bring it into Africa. Uh, I'm going to bring it into the Philippines. Everywhere where we need low-cost housing, we can almost grow your own house. Uh, I mean, and genuinely green houses. The common perception about impact investing is that there's a trade-off, that you have to trade off some financial return to gather that impact. Is there a trade-off always? And what are the ways in which planting these various different crops and sequestering carbon can create actual cash flow for the investors? I think the trade-off is down to the investors. So we have investors who are very much impact first. You know, they have already made that decision. So this is my philanthropic uh, dollar that I was going to give away anyway. So, you know, that's fine. I think if you, if you intentionally want to invest in Africa, you've already decided, right? I can make more money investing in biotech in the US and in Europe sitting in the UK. So by me making a decision that I'm going to invest in Africa, you already accepted. Never mind the fact that, you know, you've got to factor in a 5% currency depreciation every year. Right. So, so I think anyone who's invested with us accepts that they can make more money invested elsewhere. But having said that, we now have structured funds where we need to make a return. We want to prove that you can make a return. It was a lot easier a few years ago when bond rates were 0%. So, you know, it was quite easy to beat a, a 0%. Going forward might be a bit more challenging, but we'll see. So for the past few years, we've been able to say, you know, we can give you a 3 to 5% per annum return. Well, if you can do that and your social impact, or well, why not? The only caveat is local currency. We can't hedge. It's too small to hedge. And just hedging just too expensive. So I think this calls for a different breed of investors who are saying, I was going to use this in philanthropy anyway. Maybe I could just apply this into impact. But some of us are moving beyond just using our philanthropic dollars and intentionally using our real capital in this space. So there's clearly a role to play for wealth managers and for banks. Just tell us a bit more about how you'd like to see that role developing. I think the first thing is education. You know, I think we need to show our clients that there are alternative ways of using their capital. We, we are all about diversification, right? Having a mixed portfolio. 
Uh, that's fine. That's wise. And so we, we should offer this, you know, as part of the alternative investment portfolio, perhaps. And there are all kinds of ways. There are all kinds of bonds that have been structured so they can have a, a bond type, you know, investment as, as well as an equity. And, you know, there, there are groups that are, that are providing short term debt. And, and debt is really hard to come by for these kinds of businesses. And there's a need for that. There's a need for secondary markets. So, you know, one of the things I'm trying to encourage people to do is in mainstream VC, you, you've got your VC and then you've got your secondary funds and then finally your public markets. In the impact space, we are missing the secondary funds. There are no secondary funds there. So anyone in the, in the audience, you know, thinking about a new career, perhaps a secondary fund in the impact space, because some of our, our businesses, you know, they you know, our funds are, are due to close and exit in the next few years. So there are going to be a whole portfolio of these companies that are quite interesting, but maybe not quite ready yet for a public market, but could be held in a secondary fund for another four or five years and grown a little further. So maybe clients can probably safer to put money in a secondary fund, right? Rather than maybe the early stage. So there are all these kinds of opportunities, I think, for your clients. It's interesting to hear that about the secondary fund space because it, it does seem that for a private client that is quite an interesting place to play because it's less risky than yep. the initial catalytic capital that's gone in and you're probably not going to be tied up for quite as long yep. as your capital won't be as tied up for yep. quite as long as, as the sort of initial investors yeah. Yeah. Um, may have been. So that's a really interesting point. I just want to move on um, to talk about purpose, both corporate and personal purpose as well. And just to hear your thoughts about how ambitious business should be about corporate purpose and where profit fits within this wider context as well. Should businesses be more micro and perhaps focus on CSR activities or be more strategic in their thinking about their profits? You know, should their profit be with purpose or should it be the traditional model, which was profit? then purpose, that you recycled some of your profit into philanthropic activities. What are your thoughts on that? I think the fact that the next gen are pressurizing, particularly endowment funds, you know, to think hard about purpose is a clear, clear, you know, flashing light signal to us in the financial industry. I sit on a board of two very large U.S. foundations. We are seeing real pressure about how we are making the endowment investing. So I think purpose is going to come very, very clearly in line. But we're in that transition, right? But I, I think eventually purpose and profit will have to come to yield. The profit piece is key because without profit, the business can't reinvest in itself to achieve its purpose or its mission. Absolutely, Max. And it may surprise you when we evaluate a business whether to invest, our first screen is financial. Because if it can't be profitable, no matter how much impact it's going to make, we can't invest because it will then become a charity. So the profit element is important. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm sure just the first of many that we'll have over time. I certainly hope it will be. All that remains, I think, is to thank you for coming in and talking to us about impact investing today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's talk, there's plenty more where that came from. Conversations with the likes of Lillian Barnard, Alan de Botton, and Sir Richard Branson. Just scroll through Investec Focus Radio. And remember to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. 
The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.